Let's pray together, and then we'll look to God's word. Father, we come now and ask for your mercy to us, praying that you would help us as we come to your word. Um, you are God, and beside you there is no other. And we pray now, Lord God, for your help. We need your spirit to understand your word. We need your spirit to apply your word to our lives. We need your spirit to help us right now to worship over the word and worship because of the word. We need your help. So what we have not, would you give us? What we are not, would you make us? And what we know not, would you teach us? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, take your Bible and open up to Romans chapter 8. When the Lord graciously saved me at the age of 25, which was about 27 years ago, he gave me an instant love and hunger for his word. And yet it didn't actually come with the gift of discernment. So as a zealous young man desiring to hear and learn of God's word, I was trying to find God's word any place that I could find it. I was on the radio, I was on television, but yet without discernment. And my big brother had recently got saved a couple of years before, and I was looking to him for help. And I found this guy preaching on television one night, and I called my brother and said, hey, I found this guy, and he's preaching about Jesus. And so my brother just simply asked me, well, what does he look like? I said, well, he's got this great head of hair. He kind of looks Middle Eastern, and, he, and he's got a white suit on. Some of you guys know who I'm talking about. And so my brother said, everybody that talks about Jesus isn't talking about the right Jesus. And so I turned Benny Hinn off at that moment. <laughs> and I kept trying to find God's word. And in God's gracious providence, I stumbled one day in my car on to grace to you. And at that moment, I heard a voice, and that voice was preaching through the book of Romans. And I caught John MacArthur preaching at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And at the time, I was working in pharmaceutical sales, and so I was in my car a lot. And I began to just, just um, adjust my schedule every day from 1030 to 11 o'clock so I can listen to John MacArthur preach through the whole book of Romans. And him preaching through the book of Romans, or I should say the Holy Spirit using the preaching of the book of Romans changed my life. And ever since then, Romans has been very special to me. Martin Luther called the book of Romans the purest of gospel. And for anyone who has read this marvelous book, you know that to be the case. And it almost seems, almost seems unfair to skip the first seven chapters and to pick up in chapter 8. But I understand the decision to do so. For if there is a summit to the Mount Everest of the Bible, Romans chapter 8 is it. We get to, as we look at Romans chapter 8 today and tomorrow, we get to see some of the most majestic views of God's saving mercies for sinners in and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to this marvelous passage, Romans chapter 8, the great chapter 8, the chapter of which some have said, if the Holy Scripture was a ring, then the epistle to the Romans would be the precious stone, and chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of the jewel. 
Chapter 8 begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. No condemnation and no separation. And in between that, it's all about the glorious realities of what God has done for sinners in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an amazing 39 verses. And what is, what, is, what is one of the most amazing things is that out of all those 39 verses, there is not one imperative in all 39 verses. There's not one command. It's, it's all descriptive. It's all not what we are to do or what we have done or what we ought to do. It's all about what God has done for us in saving and sanctifying mercy. God is calling us as we approach this book uh, not to be thinking about what we ought to do, but just, but just glorying in all that he has done for us in sovereign grace. It is as though he's going to pour the water of his mercy and grace all over us and he wants us simply to bathe in the reality of how good and gracious and kind he really is. And so let me read the verses that have been assigned to me, verses 1 through 11. When Jackson informed me that I was going to do 1 through 11, I told Jackson, I can't even say hello in one verse in 45 minutes, let alone do 11 verses in Romans chapter 8, but we're going to seek the help of the Holy Spirit to get us there. Romans chapter 8, let me read verses 1 through 11. These are God's holy words. Paul writes, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That ends the reading of God's word. Well, to set the context, and I want to do that for a moment or so because we're jumping right into chapter 8. Let me pin down what the Apostle Paul has been doing up to this point having meticulously shown that all mankind, both Jew and Gentile, is guilty before God and shut up in sin, in sin's power, Paul closes the door on any possibility of escaping God's judgment and changing the human condition through human effort. And to show that, just turn over, keep your finger in Romans chapter 8 and turn back to Romans chapter 3. 
Here in Romans chapter 3, Paul is drawing his time to a conclusion, showing the universality of sin and thus the just righteousness of God upon all mankind. And in order for us to fully get the import of the importance and the weightiness of the statement in chapter 8, verse 1 of no condemnation, we must first understand what condemnation is all about. So if you're looking there in chapter 3, let me pick up the reading in verse 10 where Paul strings a, a list of Old Testament quotations that he uses together to show that all of us are under the just penalty of God's righteous wrath. He says there in verse 10, as it is written, as it stands written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And when Paul writes this, he's speaking of all men, Jews and Gentiles. He is saying that because of our sin, because of our union with our, our, our forefather Adam, all of us, deserve the wrath of God. And there's nothing that we can do about it. Look at verse 19 as he goes on. He says there, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that, listen to this, every mouth may be closed. And here it is, all the world may become accountable to God. All the world, that includes you and that includes me, that includes everybody. Religious or unreligious, rich or poor, black or white, it does not matter. All in Adam are accountable to God because of the guilt of their sin. Then what Paul does is he gives this amazing statement that just shuts the door of any hope of human effort to make ourselves right with God or to change our condition. Look at verse 20. He says this, because... By the works. This is why we're accountable to God. This is why we're condemned by God. This is why we're under the just penalty of God's wrath. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And you can almost hear the door of hope shut together and closed by Paul. He is saying, in essence, there is nothing that any of us could ever do in law keeping, in good works, to change our condition before a thrice holy God. Oh, and if the book stopped right there, would we indeed be in trouble? But thanks be to God, the book doesn't stop right there, does it? Following verse 20, there is a verse 21. Let me just turn your attention there because it sounds like even when we get to chapter 8, verse 1, it's this monumental, gracious shift by the apostle Paul. But now, and I know those two words don't mean a whole lot to you, but it ought to mean a lot to you. But now, God has done something different. God has stepped in. God has taken the initiative to change our circumstances in a way that we could have never done. 
Paul writes, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. And right there, Paul begins to unfold the gospel of God, the gospel that belongs to God, the gospel that comes from God, the gospel that is about God. Everything that we could not do and needed done for us from chapter 3, verse 21, all the way to chapter 7, verse 25, Paul unfolds in a careful, systematic, clear way. Talking about then how sinners can be justified before a holy God. And then how not only can we be justified uh, before a holy God, how can we be sanctified before a holy God? So he speaks not only about our condemnation, but he speaks also about our contamination. And both of those he settles in and of himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And so as we then come back to chapter 8, turn back there, we parachute into where Paul is, and it's as if as he gets to verse 1 of chapter 8, he bursts forth in triumphant celebration as he draws his reader's attention to a conclusion of the glorious realities which he's been discussing in the last seven chapters. And I pray, dear brothers and sisters, that we would be reminded as believers why we take our stand on Christ and Christ alone. Amen? Amen. That we would be encouraged to rest on the finished work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, Christ and what he has done for us is the only ground and foundation for a joyful relationship with the eternal God. So what I want to do with our time, I want to give us three headings I'm going to give us three headings if you're taking notes of glorious truth that will enrich our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. So first of all, I want you just to notice uh, that Paul gives to us a definitive declaration. That's our first heading, a definitive declaration. That's verses 1 down to verse 4. Let me just read verse 1 where Paul says, and you can almost hear the crescendo coming again, and Paul says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This monumental statement by Paul draws upon everything he's been saying up to this point. With these two words, therefore now, Paul is centering our minds and our hearts to arguably the greatest reality of the gospel, namely that there is now in Christ Jesus no condemnation. And let the church say amen, that God in Christ has cleared us from his own wrath that we deserve because of our sins. The very noose of the condemnatory judgment that hung around our necks has been removed by God himself. The dark black cloud of God's indignation against us who who suppressed his truth in unrighteousness has been cleared away. It's been cleared away by the wind of God's sovereign grace in and through his son, his person, and his work. Oh, what a declaration this is. It is profound in its importance. It is faith-building. It is hope-sustaining, and it is love-producing in its importance. 
this declaration that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is a declaration of acceptance. It's a declaration of acceptance for where before we were under the just condemnation of God, now in Christ we are fully and completely and eternally accepted by him. He was against us, but therefore now he is for us. Paul will go on to say that in chapter 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? It is not only a declaration of acceptance, but it is also a declaration of comfort. For where before we were guilt-laden because of our sins, but now in Christ our sins have been taken away and we bear them no more. The guilt was crushing us, but therefore now the guilt has been lifted. In chapter 4, verse 7, Paul wrote this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed, happy, comforted, at peace is the man or the woman or the boy or the girl whose sin the Lord will not take into account. It's a declaration of acceptance and of comfort. And thirdly, it's a declaration of freedom, of freedom. For where before we were enslaved to the death-causing sting of sin, but in Christ we have been liberated. We've been set free. Sin's power was our master. Therefore, now in Christ we've been set free to become slaves of God. In chapter 6, verse 14, Paul wrote, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Oh, my dear brothers and sisters, Paul is declaring and emphasizing that there is not one ounce of condemnation of any sort for us, not now or in the future at the final judgment. All of our condemnation has been taken away by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both the verdict of our guilt and the execution of the punishment because of that guilt has been removed. Have you ever just thought about that, dear friends? That it's not just the reality that we are guilty and justly so because of our sins that God has dealt with, has taken away. But the very punishment, the experiential punishment that our guilty sentence deserved, Jesus Christ took that upon himself as well. It is amazing what God has done for us through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And oh, how easily our consciences accuse us day by day. How easily it is that, that, that we listen to ourselves instead of preaching to ourselves. We can become overwhelmed, can't we, with our own sin and the guilt of our own sins and, and our weaknesses and our frailties. We, we, we know, don't we, just how far, far, uh, far short we fall of the glory and righteousness of God. And not to mention that Satan and, the, and, 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 and all of his hordes of demons come and accuse us day after day after day after day. Some of you that might be sitting here this evening are, are languishing under the guilt of your own sin. 
You and only you know that there's a secret that you're hoping that nobody else finds out. But brother or sister, the good news is that in Christ, he is taking that sin away. You do not have to bear that guilt and that shame because Christ paid it all on his cross. You must believe that. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. None. You are free in Christ. And so we can sing and take as our song when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within. Don't look to yourself, but upward we look and see him there who made an end of all our sin. Because the sinless Savior died, our sinful souls are counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's the gospel, loved ones. That's why we glory in the reality of all that Paul is saying here, that there's no condemnation, there's no accusation that can be made that will stick in the judgment room of God for all those who are in Christ Jesus. We glory in it. And then Paul tells us, Exactly how this came about. That's in verses 2 through 4. How did this all come about? And what's so magnificent here is that Paul attributes the, the, the work of this new reality of no condemnation status to the fullness of our triune God. Look, look, look at your Bibles there in, in verses 2 through 4a. Let me just read it. For Paul says 4. That's explaining why there's no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned the sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Did you see it there? Were you paying attention as I read? Paul mentions the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the outworking of the covenant of redemption. Our triune God has sovereignly and graciously done for us what the law could have never done, what we could have never done ourselves. Notice we have here God the Father sending his own son. Do you see that there in verse 3? For what the law could not do, weak as it was, we could not do it. There was nothing wrong with the law. But because of the sin in our flesh, because of our fallenness, all the law did was to stir flesh up in us and thus kill us. And since nothing could, do, could be done by us to change that, God intervened. God initiated salvation. Oh, loved ones, dear brothers and sisters and friends, we did not go looking for God. God came looking for us. We read in chapter 3, no man seeks after God. We only seek after God because he first seeks after us. We love God because he first loved us. And the text says God sent his own son 
He sent his own son, his one and only son, only begotten, unique, one of a kind son into the world to save sinners who had rebelled and rejected him. This is what God our Father had done to send Jesus into the world. And we have then, as you see there, the Son, His own Son, coming into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is to say that He was born as a man, born of a woman. He took on the entirety of our humanity in all of its frailness and all of His weakness, yet without our sinful nature. He was, in fact, a man, but never ceased to be eternal Son as well. Jesus Christ one person with two natures, divine nature and human nature, and the one person of Christ. He came and was incarnated and lived among us like us so that he might represent us to God and die for us in our place. We have the Father sending the Son, and we have the Son coming into the world. And you see what Paul says there, the Son came in the likeness of flesh. And literally the, the text says, and for sin. In other words, what Paul is saying is that, that Jesus came on a sin mission. That was his mission, to come and deal with our sins, all of our sins, not just some sins, but all of our sins, not just the big sins, but the small sins. Jesus came and he knew what he was coming for, and the Father did not force him to come, but he joyfully came. He came out of love and obedience for his Father to deal with our sin, and he dealt with our sin. For the end of the verse says, and he that is God the Father condemned sin, our sin, in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Do you see it there? He is saying that on that cross where Jesus hung and bled and died, God the Father, there was a divine transaction happening that human eyes could not see. The Father was pouring out all of his wrath and all of his anger and all of his indignation for all those who would ever believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ onto his Son, condemning our sin and our shame and our guilt in the flesh of Jesus Christ as he died on that cross. How amazing is that? And our Bibles even tell us in, in Isaiah 53 that it, that it pleased the Lord to crush his son for us. And so we sing, do we not? Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. You finish it. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We have the Father sending the Son. We have the Son coming, being incarnated, living and dying and rising. But then we have the application of the Son's work in us by the Holy Spirit. That's back up into verse 2, 4. The law of the Spirit of life, that's the Holy Spirit who brings life in the sphere of Jesus Christ, has set you free from the law of sin and in death. Do you see it? Our triune God in the economy of redemption working on our behalf the Holy Spirit then takes what the Son has done for what the Father sent him and he applies it to our lives 
He brings life to us, and we are awakened to the glories of God. We are regenerated, and the, the bond of sin and its enslavement and its power is broken, and we are set free in Christ. We, we, we move from darkness into light, from death into life because of the work of the Spirit of God. And then there's thus a new principle operating in our souls the principle of life because of the Holy Spirit that has set us free from the principle of the law of sin, which brings forth death. That's what God has done for us. He has brought to us, dear brothers and sisters, or he has brought us into eschatological life. The life that would be characteristic of the age to come. We are now living in that sphere right here and now in La Mirada. Praise the Lord. And we do it because the Spirit joins us to Jesus Christ. We do it because we have union and communion with Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit does in your life and in my life. We have not only been made right with God, which is justification, but we've been made alive to God as well, which is the process of sanctification as well. And that's something that the law could have never, ever done for us. God did that. We have life. And he has given it to us. But notice also down at verse 4, the purpose that Paul says about this, this glorious declaration so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We now possess the operative power of the Spirit in our lives, and, and, and we can now walk in obedience to God. No, we're, we're no longer under the law, under the, the law, uh, its power because of sin. We, we're no longer under the law in, in the sense that we have to live to try to, um, to, try to gain favor with God. But now that we have been united to Christ, the Christ who came and who loved to do the will of his Father, and he loved the law of God because we're united to him, we too now love the law of God. Well, what, what is Paul saying here? Some take this to mean that what Paul is referring to is imputed righteousness of the fulfilling of the law of Jesus. But he, he does not say so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled for us. He says, so that the righteousness requirement of the law might be fulfilled where? In us. And he goes on to talk about sanctification, practical righteousness. He is just simply saying this, that now that we're free in Christ, the Spirit of God empowers us to obey the God that we loved. Out of gratitude, out of love, we now joyfully and delight to do the will of the God who saved us by his own blood. This is nothing other than the new covenant I'll refer it to you. You don't have to turn there, but in Ezekiel uh, 36, the prophet said this, verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will, listen to this, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinance. That's the new covenant. We've been engrafted into that covenant by sovereign grace. Hallelujah, what a Savior. 
And the way that Paul writes here that it might be fulfilled in us, he writes it in such a way that, that actually we're not even the ones fulfilling the law, but there's a power within us that is doing it within us. It's, it's like what he wrote in Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. What's his good pleasure? His law. We are working it out because the Spirit of God is working it in, not just to do it, but even to will to do it. The very reality of you willing and wanting to please God is owing to the operative power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so who takes credit for our goodness? Certainly we don't. We give all praise and glory and honor to God, even though we are the ones who are working and obeying. God does it all, brothers and sisters and friends, all of it. John Wesley got it right when he wrote. You guys can see I've been reading some, some songs here lately, right? And can it be, he, he wrote, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Next verse, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. He got it right. That's our song. That's our story. May I ask you tonight, as we pause for a moment, are you in Christ? I know we're here in church in La Mirada, but are you in Christ tonight? Are you in communion and union with the risen Savior? And do you know yourself to be free from the condemnation that your sins so rightly deserve? If not, may I admonish you, may I plead with you, may I, may I beg that you flee to Jesus Christ, who is the only ark of safety suitable to shelter you from the deluge of the wrath of God to come. And if you do, this declaration will be yours. But Paul moves on from a definitive declaration to next. This is the second heading, if you're taking notes, a decisive division from a declarative or a definitive declaration to a decisive division. This is verses 5 through 8, where Paul has said at the end of verse 4, mentioning those who are in Christ, he then calls us now zeroing in on the Spirit of God and His operation in our lives. He says, those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul is simply expanding on the new life of, of those who are in Christ. We possess this, and he draws a sharp distinction 
And he basically says there are now, because of the work of Christ in the gospel age, there are just two categories of mankind that matter. There are two and only two. And I know we divide people up in all kinds of categories, but according to the gospel, according to the Bible, with the coming of Christ in this age, there are only two that matters, and every single person on the planet is in one of those two categories. categories. Not in both, but in one of the two. And Paul names them here. You're either one who is walking according to the flesh or one who is walking according to the Spirit. And Paul is highlighting the radical difference between the two. Now, now, now pay attention here because Paul is not exhorting Christians to walk in the Spirit as he does in Galatians chapter 5. He's not doing that here. You can, you can infer that from here, but what Paul is doing here, he's simply describing the differences of the two categories. We need to see it because it is glorious as we think about what we used to be in flesh and who we are now in the Spirit. Let me just draw a couple of things that Paul says here. I want you to see this, that, that, that if you are in Christ, you are in the Spirit. Everybody, if you don't write anything else down, just write that down. If you are in Christ, if you are a believer, you are definitionally in the Spirit. You don't become to be in the Spirit at some future time upon regeneration, upon being set apart by God. You are then in Christ, and because you're in Christ, you are in the Spirit. And because you are in the Spirit, you are in Christ. You will never fall out of being in the Spirit. It is a category that you are now in. And Paul says, if you notice here in verse 8 or in uh, verse 6, he says that if you are in the Spirit because your mind is set on the Spirit, you have life and peace. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that, that, that your disposition and your bent is toward God and his ways and his will and his law. It's who you are. But what Paul is really doing is he's focusing and emphasizing on the negative side of who we used to be, those who were in the flesh. Notice what he says about them. Verse 5, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. For those who are in the, according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Verse 6, for the mind set on the flesh, stop right here, is death. Brothers and sisters and friends, Unbelievers are dead men walking. Before you were saved, you were a dead woman or a dead man or a dead boy or a dead girl walking. Notice he does not say that those who are in the flesh will die. He literally says, for the mind set on the flesh is death. You are in the sphere of death. You are separated from God, and to be separated from God, that's all that death means is separation. For the unbeliever, they are dead. They're dead because of their sins and their trespasses. But if that were enough, though Paul continues to go on, it's not only death, but notice what he says in verse 7, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile. There is hostility. In other words, what Paul is saying, that the non-believer is at war with God. And I know many non-believers don't even know that there is a God or believe that there is a God, and they would never say they're at war with God, but the Bible says that that's what exactly they are. 
They are at war with God in full rebellion against their very creator, the one who is sustaining their life as they breathe every single breath. They are at war with him. He goes on, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It intentionally and actively does not subject itself to the law of God. And Paul just closes the door and he says, for it is not even able to do so. And as a result, verse 8, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's a horrible picture, isn't it? It is about the condition of those who are not in Christ. And please understand, there are degrees in each category. Not every single person who is in the flesh, a non-believer, is as bad as the next person. Any more than every single person who is in the Spirit is as holy, practically speaking, than the next Christian. But the categories are set. And I am so grateful that they're set in such a way, though, that you can get out of being in the flesh to being in the Spirit and let everybody say amen. And I'm equally and maybe even more thankfully that the door is really set that once you are in the Spirit, you cannot go back into the other category. Hallelujah! That once by sovereign grace you are in the Spirit, you are there forevermore. And the hope that we take from a place like this after hearing preaching on Romans chapter 8 is to go out into our neighborhoods and in our homes and in our schools and in the marketplace and tell those who are still in the flesh that there is a God who loves them and sent his son to do for them what they could never do for themselves, namely take their place on the cross bearing the wrath that their sins deserve. And he died and he was raised from the dead and he exalted himself to the right hand of his father where he extends saving mercy and grace freely to all who would come to him by repentance and faith. That's our message. Amen. How amazing is this, this great decisive division that by grace we are now on the right side. And we are in the sphere of the Spirit. And if we had time, we can unfold that what Paul is saying here, starting from the bottom, working its way up, that you are according to the Spirit that now you have a, you have a spirit-wrought nature, and therefore your mind then is set on the spirit, so you think spiritual thoughts, and then therefore you conclude by walking according to the spirit. It's who you are. In the same way that those who are in the flesh have a fleshly nature, therefore they mind only the things of the flesh, and therefore they only walk according to the flesh. They are walking and living according to their nature, and no one can change their own nature any more than a leper can change his own spots. It takes God to do that, and he did it for us in Christ. And we have the Holy Spirit as proof that he did it. Now let me hasten on and we will draw our time to a close on heading number three. We have a definitive declaration, a decisive division, and thirdly, a divine indwelling. I could not come up with another D. 
I was going to do a divine domicile, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> a divine indwelling. And, and, and this is what our dear brother will take up in our, in our next session, because in some senses, Romans chapter 8 is the Holy Spirit's chapter. He is mentioned uh, almost 21 times in this chapter alone. And, and Paul is moving us to understand the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. This new life we now have, our new status of no condemnation, and our new power to walk in obedience to God has, is made practically possible by the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Let me read verses 9 through 11. Paul says, as he ends in verse 8, And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the strong adversity of right there, but in the Spirit. If indeed, and when he says if indeed, he doesn't mean he has any doubt. If indeed, and that being the case would be a way to understand it, the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Did you guys pick it up three times? Once in verse 9, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Twice in verse 11, he, him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. At the end of the verse, he will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. That's the point, that the Spirit dwells in you. When I was in college, when the earth's crust was still hardening. I had a roommate back then. You have to used to have to stay in the dorms at, at least for one year, and they would pair you with somebody that you didn't know. And I met the guy like one time, and he like unpacked his clothes, and he hung his clothes up and put his books down. And I think I saw the guy maybe about four times the whole semester. He was, he, was, he, was, he was staying with his buddies. He was staying with his girlfriend, right? Now, presumably, we were supposed to live together, but he was never there. He did not dwell with me. <laughs> you understand? That's not who the Holy Spirit is. Contrary to this, this bizarre teaching out there in evangelicalism today, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. He unpacks his bags and he stays. He's dwelling, his present tense, he is dwelling forever, dwelling with you. Oh, we can ignore him, we can quench him, we can grieve him, but he does not leave us. He is dwelling in each one of us. Omnipotent power, the one who hovered over the creation is now dwelling in the new creation, which is you, never to leave you. Bringing all the force of God's power in your life. And surely as a result of this, the righteous requirements of the law can be fulfilled. We are no longer enslaved and shackled to sin. We can live holy lives, brothers and sisters. Oh, not perfectly because our bodies are still mortal. And they must die and go back into the ground. 
And we still struggle with remaining sin, although sin no longer reigns. But God is with us. And let me just say this, and I'll take my seat. Let me just show you the three things that the Spirit does that Paul is emphasizing here. And I'm sure our brothers and sisters who are doing our breakouts on tomorrow can tease this out for us. First of all, the Holy Spirit signifies our salvation. That's verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Do you see that there? The Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. And if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. But the fact that you have the Spirit of Christ, it signifies that you are actually in union and communion with Christ. Christ's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, He he is distinguishable from Him but not inseparable from Him. To have the Spirit is to be joined to Christ. That's the next. He signifies the Holy Spirit does our salvation. Verse 10, he joins us to Jesus. He's the instrument by which we are united to Jesus. Verse 10, if Christ is in you. How is Christ in us? Christ is in us. I thought Christ was in heaven. Isn't he in heaven at the right hand of the Father? But he is in us because he has sent another like him, the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he brings Jesus' presence with him. And so Jesus is made alive. He's made real in us, dwelling in us because the Holy Spirit is in your life. He signifies our salvation. He joins us to Jesus. And then thirdly, he guarantees our glorification. He guarantees our glorification. As I mentioned, our, our, bodies, our, our bodies are still mortal, and they must die because of our sin. But our spirit, verse 10 says, is alive because of the righteousness of Christ. But notice verse uh, 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, notice this promise. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give your mortal bodies through his spirit or give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And I take that to be future tense. He will give life to your mortal bodies. So in other words, the Spirit of God not only has sealed you, um, your salvation to Jesus and joined you to Jesus, but he will complete the ultimate redemptive transaction and that when you die on that day, he will raise your body from the dead. Amen? So it is not only justification, it is not only sanctification, but it is also glorification. And it is as a result of the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. How great is this salvation? Brothers and sisters, we are, each one of us in Christ, more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors. We are overwhelmingly conquering through him who loved us. I could pretend like I knew Latin and say we are super vincimus. (laughs) That's who we are. Somebody out there, make a T-shirt and put on the back, super us. And then when somebody asks you what that means, you say, hey, I'm more than a conqueror. And then tell them how they might become one as well in Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time together. We pray your blessings upon your word You would seal it to our hearts and our minds as we 
begin this conference in hearing of the glories of your saving work as God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Oh, we pray, Lord God, that you would do a mighty work in us. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.